is Paul mealy mouth here? Is he trying not to offend anybody? You do wrong. Is he saying they're doing wrong? He says it. You're doing what's wrong. You're defrauding, but you're defrauding your own kind, your own brother. And then he makes a statement. He says, down there in verse 12, all things are lawful. In other words, you may have a right, legal-wise, to take a brother to court. But he says, all things are not expedient. In other words, I don't have to. All things are lawful me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The power is the power of the law, under the power of a judge to solve a problem. We can solve that with God's word. Wouldn't it be neat if all God's people did, but we don't do it. Because, you know, it's just living in a world in which we live. Now, there's one thing if you get somebody hurts or injures you and so forth. The Bible says in the law in the Old Testament that it's supposed to be made right. And I guess you could say, well, if a man puts out my eye, I'm going to put out your eye. Now, Christ says in the New Testament, no. But there's times when you have to do what is right. And whenever you can, he says, live peaceably with all men. What's the next two words? If possible. Is it possible to live peaceably with everybody? No. There are people in the world today who does not want peace. They want you dead. Remember I told y'all, I don't know, when I first came here. It won't be long before you'll see riots in the streets. And it's going to happen. And it's happening. He said, well, everybody knew that. No, they didn't. And nobody didn't say it. I preached it. I warned people about Obama before he ever became president of what he was like and what he wanted to do. And, buddy, he is doing exactly what he wants to do. He's not a dumb man. He has an agenda. You can say, well, he's a puppet, but he is a good puppet. He's doing what a liberal, how he thinks and what he wants done. And it's just doing a lot of damage to this country. But anyway, that's another sermon for another time. Look at the next point. Number eight, they were abusing their liberty in Christ and making others stumble. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And you'll notice down there in verse 9 where he says, But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. They were doing that. They were stumbling blocks. They were carnal. A carnal Christian causes other people to stumble. That's carnal Christian. Because if he walks in the flesh, he encourages other people to walk in the flesh. But the Bible says, let him that is spiritual, Galatians chapter 6, seek to restore the one that's walking in the flesh. So the goal is not just to condemn a person, but to try to help the person that's not right with the Lord to get right with the Lord. God is going to reward you when you get to heaven, not just for the lost you want to Christ, but for the Christians you help. Train in the Lord and get to serve the Lord. So that's why that is so important. Look at number nine. They were critical of Paul, the one who led them to Christ. Look in chapter nine. Look in verse one. So they're getting all over his case, these carnal Christians. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? I want you to cry. You are my work. If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of my apostleship are you in the Lord. 
My answer to them that do get to examine me is this. So people were examining Paul, questioning Paul, questioning his spirituality. And who made you an apostle? And he's the one that led him to Christ. Can you imagine how he felt? Hold your place right here. I just want you to see this. Look there in 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. There's a verse there that really grips your heart. It really does. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look in verse 8. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. In other words, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of who I am and what I have and what I'm doing. My apostleship, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of my position. That's why he says later on, he says, I labored more abundantly than they all, all the apostles, because his grace was not bestowed upon me in vain. Then he says in verse 9, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. This is what they were saying about Paul. His speech is contemptible. And his bodily presence, weak. I don't know, what did he look like? An old shriveled up Jew? Bent over? Bad eyesight? What did he go through? What did he suffer to get them the gospel and then have them treat him like they did? And then give that air of spirituality. So he lowers the boom. He says, you're carnal Christians. I can't speak unto you as spiritual. So then he says here in verse 11, let such and one think this, that such as we are in words by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. That day is coming. And if only they would understand just how great of a man he really was and they didn't understand. And he says, the more I love you, the less I be loved. Look there in chapter 12. I want you to see this. Look in verse 14. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you. And when I do, I'm going to bring a razor strap. That was just Yankee Arm. He said, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I'm the parent. In verse 15, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Wouldn't that break your heart? I believe Paul wrote and wrote with tears. You remember in the book of Ephesians, he says, when he's talking there, in the, not in Ephesians, but it was at Ephesus, but in the book of Acts, where he talks about, he said, I was among you for three years. Every day and night with tears. He was quite a man. And then later on in his life, he says, they've all forsook me. Everybody left Paul. And Paul's carrying on doing what he can until the day he died. But when he got to heaven, do you think everybody's going to know the truth? All these people that said all these things against him, now they know, huh? Now they know. And that's why Paul says, 
He was a patient man. He can wait. When he gets to heaven, God's going to tell him. They're going to know. And I believe they'll know the harm that they did. The shame they brought on the cause of Christ. All these things. So important. Look at number 10. They were coming to the Lord's table drunk. They were carnal who drank and carnal who tolerated it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 20. Yeah, what I want you to see is there in uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians. No, let's write there in 1 Corinthians. I want you to see this. See there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we talk about the church coming together. And people saying, well, you don't have to come together. You know, I, I can worship God in the mountains. Yeah, I know. I can worship God out there on the lake when I'm fishing. Yeah, I know. But God still says that we're supposed to come together. Well, look what he says in his word. See, there in 1 Corinthians in chapter 14, look in verse 23. If therefore the whole church be sitting on the mountainside, everybody in his own little valley and little mountains. No, he says, when you come together into what? One place. So does God want his people to come together into one place? That's what the book says. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you. There's people who say, well, I don't need church. God says you do. When does a man get so smart he don't have to do what God says? He sets himself in judgment against God. Then notice what he says in verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together? How is it when you come together? So he's telling them this is where it ought to be. And he kind of gives them a list of some things. But these are some things that are mentioned right here in the Word. And it's important. But he talks about them coming together. Coming together. Look what he says there in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. You'll notice there in verse 17. 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. You see in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren. He praises them when he can. But he said, now this, I can't praise you on this because this you're doing wrong. I praise you not that you come together. They come together. But some coming together, it was for the worse. Made them worse. Because they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Now, do you think that was honoring to God? So why is he pointing out all their flaws at this church? He's defending himself. You're the one that's trying to get all over my case. But let me point out a couple things to you, you spiritual giants. He says in chapter 4, look at us and look what's going on. He says, and we're fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you're so wise. You're so strong, but we're so weak. So now he's pointing out, this is what's your problem. You've got a problem here. You've got a problem here. You've got a problem here. And so he says there in verse 20, when you come together, therefore into one place. So God does want his people to come together. Now, as you go through here and you read this, it's so important. Now, look what he says in verse 28. Remember in chapter 9, he says, I say this to those who want to examine me. And here he makes this statement in verse 28. Let a man examine who? Himself. You want to examine me? You need to examine yourself. If you think you see fault in me, you ought to see what I see in you. And buddy, he lays it out, takes him the task, takes out the razor straps, 
Hits them a pretty good bunch. And then in verse 31, he says, if we would judge ourselves. He says, I can't talk to you as under spiritual because you're carnal minded. So he's trying to wake them up. He doesn't tell them, well, that's a sign you're not saved. He doesn't tell them that. Nowhere does he question their salvation. He just says, you're carnal. You're not spiritually minded like you ought to be. And there's so much that God wanted to teach them. Look there at number 11 in your book. They were acting in a frivolous way at the Lord's Supper. In other words, as though it meant nothing. Making a mockery out of something that was so precious. Number 12, they were misusing the spiritual gifts that God had given to them. Chapter 12 and chapter 13. All this is in there. But look, just look at that chapter 14 and verse 12. In verse 12, chapter 14. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, but live in a carnal life. You desire the spiritual gifts, but you're carnal Christians. Seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Is what they were doing edifying the church or destroying the church? See, they weren't building each other. They were destroying each other, ripping each other apart. Instead of helping and praying for one another and encouraging one another, exhorting one another, they were just very destructive of each other. And then also another verse there, and that's in chapter 14, verse 26. Look at verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, a doctrine, a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Let all things be done unto edifying. And they were not edifying one another. Edify doesn't mean edify. And he says here in verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion. They had a church of confusion. There was nothing clear. They couldn't even discern a spiritual man from a carnal man. They lost it. Their testimony was gone. And so he says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all churches of the saints, let your women keep silent in the churches. Evidently they weren't. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as un, also saith the law. Then he makes this statement down here in verse 40 one more time. Let all things be done decently and in order. Number 13 in your notes, they were questioning the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. Look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They were questioning the resurrection. Because evidently some of the people in the church did not believe that there was a resurrection. And they were saying it's already done past. Well, if there's not going to be a resurrection, what's going to happen to those people who have already died? There is a good explanation. So Paul spends one whole chapter, and it's a long chapter, on the resurrection. Look what he says here. In verse 1 of chapter 15, Moreover, brethren... I declare unto you that the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Now that looks like, um, well, you could believe in vain. 
I believe, but you could have believed in vain. If you don't remember and keep it in your mind. And so it could cause you a little problem with that. But really the answer is simple. He's talking about the resurrection. If Christ did not come back from the dead, then you have no Savior. He's still dead. If there's no resurrection, he didn't come back. If he didn't come back, then the whole word of God isn't true. Because it says that he will come back on the third day. Well, he didn't. So then you're trusting in somebody that can't save you. And if he didn't come back from the dead, why would you believe we're going to have a resurrection of our bodies? So can you believe in vain? Yeah, if Christ didn't come back from the dead, he can't save anybody. So you're trusting somebody that can't save. But did he come back from the dead? If he came back from the dead, then you did not trust him in vain. And your preaching is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. And everything makes sense. So look what he says. Unless you have believed in vain, verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sin, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then he talks about all the people that saw him. As a testimony, he did come back from the dead. Now, in verse 12, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, evidently, somebody among them was saying there is no resurrection. Doctrinally, they were off. So, if they say that, and it's not true, Paul hit it. Says you're wrong. He did come back from the dead. So in verse 13, For if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. He said, When I came to you, this is what I preached. Christ died, paid for our sins, came back from the dead. Now if He didn't, then my preaching was in vain. You trusted in vain. Your faith is in vain. Because Jesus is still dead. If he's dead and didn't come back from the dead. But some of y'all are teaching that Christ did not come back. Well, if he didn't come back from the dead, what are you trusting in? So he says in verse 15, Yea, and we are found Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what they say. Because we have testified of God, he raised up Christ. Get this. Whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is what? That's why he says over there in chapter 15 and verse 2, unless you have believed in vain. It's only in vain if Christ did not come back from the dead. But didn't he come back from the dead? Because he came back from the dead, then my faith in him is not in vain. He's trying to help them be illuminated in their mind so they could see. So look what he says there in verse 17. If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. It means if Christ didn't come back from the dead, you're still in your sins. Remember, if a man is born in sin lives in sin, dies in sin, there's no salvation. Remember, there were three that died on that cross. 
Three people died on the cross of that day. One died to sin. One died in sin. And one died for sin. Three, and all three different. Is that we were born in sin and we live in sin, but we die in Christ. We're in Christ and his resurrection, we're in him. He came back from the dead and it not in vain. So that's why he says here in verse 18, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Those who have already died in the Lord, if there is no resurrection, then they're not saved. They're still in their sin. They perish. They go to hell. In verse 9, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Because there's no hope. There's nothing to look forward to. But Christ did come back from the dead. But he says in verse 20, now, now, now is Christ risen from the dead. And because he came back from the dead, you and I don't have to worry about these old bodies. There's life after death. If Christ didn't come back from the dead, see, it's like saying, there's no life after death. There's nothing. But Christ did come back. And because all of this is true, and then he asked the question here, if Christ did not, then what about those people in verse 19? If only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And those in verse 18, they are perished. But that's why verse 51 is so important. It answers the question. What about those that have already died? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or not all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. That's the bodies that have already corrupted will be raised incorruptible. And then he says in verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal, that's you and I that are still alive, subject to death, mortal, put on immortality. So the bodies that have already corrupted will be made incorruptible. And those who are alive when the Lord comes back will be made immortal. Put on immortality. These mortal bodies subject to death. And then that's why in verse 58, a conclusion verse that is awesome. Look what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Is he trying to encourage the people to do right? Yeah. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. Christ did come back from the dead. It is true. And remember, he got a chance to go to heaven, and he saw things that was unlawful for him to talk about. But, buddy, I tell you, now this will close with this, but look in chapter 16, verse 13. He says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men. I guess when he says, quit ye like men, because men don't quit. Be strong. Let all your things be done with charity, with love. With love. So, he finishes off pretty good. He encourages them, motivates them, challenges them. Be therefore unmovable, 
steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Look up here. This hand represents you and me. The wallet represents sin. We all have sin upon us. Now, God says that he loves us. He hates our sin. But for us to pay for sin is eternal separation from God in hell. But he loves us and wants us to go to heaven. And to go to heaven, we must be perfect, as righteous as God. And none of us are perfect. None of us are righteous. That's why we needed a Savior. The Bible says you cannot save yourself. Because of sin, we can't get into heaven. And no amount of works will take away sin. You can go to church, but it doesn't take away sin. Give money, it doesn't take away sin. Those things cannot pay for sin. The wages of sin is death. That's why everybody dies. So your good deeds, regardless of how good, doesn't pay for sin. This hand represents Jesus Christ. He's the Lord God in the flesh. He came into this world because he loved us. So in order to pay for our sins, he went to church. To pay for our sins, he, he gave a million dollars. No, he paid for my sins. He had to die. He took my sins, paid for it by dying. He died in my place. Christ died for our sins. Why? So we wouldn't have to pay for our sins. That's why he did it for us. Substitution. A lot of people still never get this. Came back from the dead and God said if we would believe that he did it for us, we would have eternal life. So because he came back from the dead, me believing this message is not in vain. Me preaching the message is not in vain. Our service for the Lord is not in vain because it's all true. And we're going to be in heaven with the Lord one of these days. But I've trusted Christ as my Savior, and I have eternal life, and I pray that you have also. Let's pray, shall we? With heads bowed and eyes closed and no one looking around, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you to do so. But right where you are, and right where you are that's watching by Internet, if you reduce the screen where it's smaller, right on the bottom says, Yes, I will trust Christ as my Savior. I pray that you'll do just that. And just click it on and let us know. It just lets us know that somebody trusts the Lord. If you've already trusted Christ as Savior, you don't have to do it. But I do want each person to know they have eternal life. And if you trust Christ right now as your Savior, He will save you from hell, give you eternal life, and you can know that you're going to heaven when you die. I pray that you will. With heads bowed and eyes closed, anyone else before we close say, Yes, I will trust Christ as my Savior tonight. Just slip it up very quickly. Our Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come together to read, study your word. We pray that you'll bless each one for being here. And we pray for a good week. And next week, a lot of people will spend time with their families. Pray wherever they go that you'll give them safety. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.